Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. Do you have passages of Scripture that are just hard for you? Like, you ever read the Bible and you come across passages of Scripture that are just hard? You're like, man, I don't know about that. Uh, One of the hard passages of Scripture for me is Exodus 14, 14. And Exodus 14, 14 says, the Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Is that a hard passage for any of you guys? It's a hard passage. Have you ever tried to do this? Like, have you ever actually tried to do that? Like, you see something in your face, and you go, uh, I'm not supposed to fight on my own behalf? Now, the context of this passage is the Israelites have been running from Egypt. They get to the Red Sea. The Egyptians are chasing them. You know, they get cornered, right? You guys know this, this story. They get cornered by the Red Sea, and Moses, they start to panic. They're like, well, did you bring us out here to die? And Moses says, he just says, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And if you know the rest of the story, he holds his staff up, the Red Sea parts. The Israelites walk through the, the dry ground of the Red Sea, and then the Egyptians get washed away in the Red Sea. So we can't just like pluck that passage and say, well, I'm going to apply that to my life. Except, I don't know if you've noticed this, but all the way through the Bible, this theme keeps coming back. That God actually does intend for his people to remain still and confident as he takes care of them. And I don't know about you, but I have a real hard time with that. And here's why I have a hard time with that. God doesn't do it the way I want him to. His timing is not exciting, or maybe too exciting. Have you found that to be true? You know, like, I, I'm, God, I'm trying to wait for you. You say you're going to provide, but, like, the day is tomorrow. You're going to come through or not? And then he does. You go, ooh, that was good. That was good. Or he doesn't do it the way I want him to, right? You know, I'm like, listen, two more steps, God. If we go two more steps this way, we'll be in a great spot. And God's like, no, we're going 95 more steps around this way because it'll be better for you. I'm like, but God, why can't we just do it my way one time, right? God doesn't do things the way I want him to, and he doesn't do things in the timing that I think he should do them. But what's interesting is what happens inside of me during the waiting. Have you ever paid attention to what happens inside of you as you're waiting for God to, you know, I'm trying to be still and wait for God to take care of me? Have you ever paid attention to what happens inside of you? Here's what happens inside of me. I begin to, even though, even though God has taken care of me countless times, even though I've watched him fight battles for me over and over and over, even though he's provided for me at every turn, When the delay comes, what happens? I start to wonder, is this going to be the time he doesn't come through? Is this going to be the time that God just doesn't show up and doesn't protect me? And for those of you who were with me on the retreat a month ago, you recognize that this comes from a deep childhood wound, right? That that I have a fear that people who are supposed to take care of me won't. And so I project that on God all the time. So as soon as the, the gap happens... 
what do I do? I start getting busy, right? I got I to gotta protect myself. I got to you know, pr- project this image that I've got it all together. I got to make sure that I you know, have all of my ducks in a row. I'm going to hedge all my bets just in case this is the time God doesn't come through. Anybody like me? You start to like, you start to go, well, maybe this is the time God's not going to take care of me. And so, and here's the thing. All it is is our own insecurity coming out as pride, isn't it? Like, I find myself in a space where people are very, very, very smart. And for those of you who know, that's, that's one that I want to be considered smart. And so I, if God doesn't come through and take care of me in that moment, if I don't know that God loves me in that moment, I start pretending like I'm the smartest one and I have all the answers, which just looks really ugly in a lot of spaces. But it, all it is is my own insecurity coming out as pride. Do you guys have that experience? Have you had that experience where, where your own insecurity shows up? We've been in this series for Lent called Exchange, and part of the idea behind the series is that over and over, Jesus invites us into this relationship with God of exchange, right? Our brokenness for his wholeness, our sinfulness for his righteousness, our despair for his joy. And so through this series, we've been looking at Isaiah chapter 61, looking at these, uh, these exchanges. And today, as we begin uh, Holy Week with, with Palm Sunday, I didn't get you guys palms. I hope you'll forgive me. They just make an awful mess. That and I don't know where you buy them, but um, Amazon maybe. Amazon has everything. Um, but as we begin Holy Week, what I want to do is I want to jump from Isaiah to Matthew. And we're going to take a look at this triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And, and, and what, what I want you to see today is that the exchange that's offered is one of pride, our pride, for Jesus' humility. The exchange we're talking about today is our pride for Jesus' humility. I want to call this message, I want to be humble like Jesus. I want to be humble like Jesus. Would you pray with me before we look at Scripture? So Lord, I do just welcome you into this place in greater measure. And you have been present and active with us, Lord. And so I pray that you would come, that you would distribute gifts of humility. God, I pray that you would distribute gifts of freedom for people today. That as we begin to see the ways that that pride gets in the way of what you invite us into, Lord, would you give us the grace to to let it go? To relinquish the pride and the insecurities, God, that you might fill us with your humility. Lord, would you give me grace to speak as I should? Would you fill my mouth with your words and put power on this message? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. If, any, if you need a Bible, I've got one. Anybody need a Bible? No? There's some on the side. You can grab one. But as you're turning to Matthew 21, I want to give you just a little bit of context for what's happening here. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And I've advocated for this before. You should read your Bible with maps. You guys know there's maps in your Bibles? You should look at the maps. The maps are really, really helpful. Helpful. As we get to Matthew chapter 20 and into 21, what's happening is Jesus and his entourage are making a trip from the northeast down to Jerusalem. So he's stopping Jericho and on, on down the way. 
as they're coming down uh, from uh, Jericho, what ends up happening is uh, Jesus is, uh, tells his disciples that for the third time, that, hey, when we get to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me. He says this over and over and over, and the disciples are sort of like, well, I don't understand. I thought we were doing some sort of government revolution, kingdom of God. I, I'm not sure what you mean. You keep saying you're going to get killed. Well, so then uh, in the face of this, James and John's mother come to Jesus and they say, hey, when you get there and you make this kingdom revolution, I want you to give privileged places to my sons. And of course, everybody else gets all upset and it's like, wait a minute. And they're not upset because they're just upset they didn't get there first, right? Like that's how that ends up working. They're just very upset that, that these guys are trying to get for themselves this, this, these privileged places. And so Jesus stops in Matthew 20 and he says, my kingdom doesn't work like every other kingdom. And this sets the stage for what happens in 21. He says, my kingdom's not like every other kingdom. Every other kingdom is trying to get a power above everyone else. Jesus says, in my kingdom, to have power is to serve, to lay your life down, to serve, to humble yourself. And then so so that brings us to chapter 21. And chapter 21, here's what we were going to read, the first 11 verses of Matthew chapter 21. And it says, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought their donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. You know, as as you, you see this play out, Jesus and his entourage show up at Bethpage and, and it's about a mile outside of Jerusalem. So as you're coming down, you're kind of coming down the mountains. And, and, and it's on the backside of the Mount of Olives where he shows up. And he says, hey, before we get there, go on up ahead to this next town and get this colt and this donkey and, and bring them back. But there's something that he says that we may miss. He, he tells them that if anyone says anything, tell them that the Lord needs it. Now, this word for Lord is curios. And it's significant because it means the supreme authority, the king, the ruler. But it also gets used in reference to the Messiah that they've been waiting for. Jesus is explicitly telling them that he is the king. And what he's setting up here is a kingly procession into Jerusalem. It's saying there's a new king in town. We're going to march in as the new king. We're setting up a procession, except it's a really strange procession. And maybe we wouldn't see it, but normally if there's a new king that shows up, 
The new king is, is escorted by all the military warriors after a big conquest. We just defeated the other guys. And we show up and you've got just crowds of the army with weapons showing up. And it's all the pomp and circumstance. But Jesus isn't coming from a military conquest. And he's not being escorted by the typical army. John tells us the people that are around him are all the people who were watching when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. So it's just a, a ragtag bunch of people who watched Jesus do a miracle. And they're not carrying weapons, they're carrying palm branches and cloaks. And the cherry on top of all this is that Jesus doesn't even own the donkey and the colt that he's riding in on. He borrowed it from someone else. Think about how crazy this looks. These people in Jerusalem know what a procession of a king looks like. And here comes Jesus stumbling down the side of the mountain on a donkey with a whole bunch of people waving palm branches who have no weapons. Can you imagine how crazy this looks? And people are looking going, what is this? What is this craziness? Normally we would expect chariots and war horses. And we got a donkey. I mean, think about how nonsensical that looks. I mean, you just, you just think about, you know, you go ride on a donkey. It looks a little silly probably if you're going to try to champion and show people how powerful you are. And G remember, Jesus says, my kingdom's not the way the kingdoms of this world work. Of course, Matthew puts a little bit of the pieces together for us in verse 5. And he tells us that Jesus chooses this mode of transportation because of the prophet Zechariah. I want to read that to you. Zechariah chapter 9. This is in the Old Testament. And this is a prophecy of what the Messiah will, will look like. Verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then he tells us what, what it should look like. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. And the battle bow will be broken. That's what it normally looks like. The Messiah will break that. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is, this is what Zechariah pro prophesied, that the kingdom that the Messiah will bring is going to be a different kind of kingdom. That there won't be war horses and there won't be chariots. And so Jesus shows up on a donkey. And Jesus is ushering in a different kind of kingdom, one that's marked by humility. Not one marked by arrogance and pride, not one marked by aggression. It's humility. It's lowliness. The kingdom that Jesus brings is a different kind of kingdom. Power in the kingdom Jesus brings works differently than we might otherwise think. It's interesting that, the, that power is exercised by serving people. In the kingdom Jesus brings, power is exercised by laying down your life and your preferences for someone else. It's a different kingdom. Right? I mean, we're in the middle of watching this whole thing over in Russia and Ukraine, right? This is the way the world's power works, right? We come in, we bomb them to the Stone Age, and we take over, and we fight the battle until we win. And Jesus shows up and says, no, the way power works in the kingdom is I lay down my rights for the benefit of other people. It's a kingdom of humility. 
And we could just end the sermon here, right, and say, oh, okay, so the message is like, I just got to go be more humble, right? Just, just go and be more humble. And have you ever tried to do that? As soon as you start thinking about being more humble, you're instantly not, right? People who tell you they're humble people, you guys know those people, right? Or are we those people? See, I think most of us probably understand the idea of the kingdom as a conceptual thing. This idea of humility, right? If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've surrendered your life to Jesus, that's how you began, right? You got to this place where you got to the end of your abilities and you recognized you needed something else, right? And so you surrendered your life and you said, Jesus, if you can do something with this, here you go, right? We laid down our lives. That's how you get into the kingdom. That's how it starts. That's the way I started. I recognized I was unable to fix myself and I was out of resources. And my prayer quite literally was, Jesus, if you're real, you have to do something with my life. I was basically saying, I've tried. Here, you have this and you give it a go. That's the way it starts, right? That's the way we start our our lives in the kingdom. But then something happens after we live in the kingdom for a little while, doesn't it? You know, uh, Jesus saves us. He begins to heal us. The Spirit of God lives inside of us and starts to transform us. And we start to see these things called the fruit of the Spirit, right? You guys know love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, get all the way down the line, right? Self-control is the last one. And you start going, wow, look at this self-control that I have. Wow, look at this hope. I'm a hopeful person. I'm a joyful person. All of these things. And we begin to believe that we did that. Don't we? We start going, man, I'm really coming along. Look at me. And we start to lay hold of the work Jesus has done in our lives, don't we? We start to lay hold of these things as if somehow we were the people that made it happen. And what began in humility gets co-opted by pride. Have you seen this in your life? The longer you follow Jesus, the more tempting this gets, right? Because you see things changing in your life, and you start to get pretty proud of yourself. If you've never experienced that, just wait. We begin to believe our own hype, right? So we begin to claim the transformation that God's working, but that's not the kingdom way. See, one of the significant things to note about Jesus, I don't know if you've ever paid attention to the life of Jesus, but it starts in humility, especially the ministry of Jesus, right? It starts in humility. He says, I have to be baptized. Why? Because you're sinful? No, to fulfill all righteousness. He humbly submits to baptism. That's how he starts. He says, I will be baptized. But then through his life and through his ministry, it's humility over and over and over. Do you know that he never lets go of humility? You know, Jesus never outgrows humility. If, if there was anyone who at the end of their life had a right to say, now I'm going to fight for myself and I'm going to claim my rights as the king, it's Jesus, right? They're going to kill him. If anyone has a right, I think Jesus has a right. And yet, he holds on to humility all the way to death on a cross. There's an interesting thing, though. As we follow a guy like Jesus, we've surrendered our lives to Jesus. As we begin to follow, we live our lives following Jesus, something happens in us where we believe there's some right that we don't have to do that anymore. Have you seen this in yourself? I've certainly seen it in myself. 
we sort of go, yeah, Jesus is humble, but now I can stand on my rights. I can claim my rights. And we become people who are all about our rights rather than being humble people. And the question I want to ask is, what right do we have if we follow Jesus? What right do we have to start claiming rights when he never claimed his? Do we have a right? Let me offer you a challenging thought for your consideration. As human beings, we seem to have a limitless capacity to deceive ourselves. Have you found this in yourself? Like, you can lie to yourself really, really well, right? How many of you have lived a long time and then you discover something new about yourself that you never knew? Have you had that happen, right? The rest of you just haven't lived long enough, maybe? Um, (laughs) But we have this limitless ability to deceive ourselves, And for many of you here, nothing I've said to this point strikes you as odd or disconcerting, right? Yes, it's humility in, I surrender my life. Yes, it's humility like Jesus, right? Nothing is weird about that. But let me ask you this. Have you ever found that you were living in a way that you didn't think you were living? Have you ever come across these things that are surprising about who you are? Everybody else sees them, by the way. But we have this limitless capacity to let pride in. You see, pride is sneaky. We see the best in ourselves and we're blissfully ignorant of all the worst things, aren't we? And when we do come across the things that are not good about our lives, what do we do? We go, well, there's a reason why I have to have that. I have to be that way, right? If Jesus were here today, he would be okay with that. We justify it. So we either pretend like we don't know or we don't know or we justify it. What I want you to consider is the possibility where there may be areas in your life where pride is in charge that you either don't see or you have justified. I want you to consider that for a minute. Thanks, Derek. You came to church to feel comfortable and you made me very uncomfortable. You're welcome. Come back next week. If you have trouble seeing this stuff in your life, ask somebody who walks with you regularly, lives life close to you. Do you know everybody else sees it? You don't see it. And the question to ask is, where do you see me lacking humility? And everything in you wants to get defensive when they answer, right? That's a very uncomfortable question. Every time I've ever asked it, I don't like the answers that I get. Don't get defensive, but take that and hold it before the Lord. Because there's a chance that maybe there's parts of your lives that you're not aware of. You know, much much of the difficulty that we find when it comes to being humble people is fear-based. It's fear-based. Let me try to explain that. We fear... That if we don't fight for ourselves, if we don't posture ourselves big enough, nobody's going to fight for us. It's fear-based. We fear that if we don't fight for God, then nobody will. I have to fight for God. I have to fight his battles. Or we fear that if we don't fight for what's right, then nobody else will. And we take on this fear that if somebody else believes something different, what does that say about me? Right? We live into this space. And at the root of of this is the lack of belief that God can and will fight your battles and his. 
Have you ever come across that in your life? That if we're really, really honest with ourselves, we have this low-level fear that God is not who he says he is. Maybe it's not so low for some of us. That maybe God won't fight his own battles, so I have to fight them for him. Maybe God won't fight my battles, so I have to fight them for myself. And so the way this looks is, is that we begin to fear that maybe we're, not, we're actually unlovable people. That maybe God won't fight our battles because we're actually not worth fighting for. Are we getting close? That's hitting some deep level, isn't it? Don't we sort of fear that a little bit? Let me show you how this plays out. Someone else gets something good. What's our reaction? Why didn't I get something good? Does that mean something about me? Somebody else gets a compliment. And so all of a sudden we say, why why didn't they compliment me? Does that mean something about me? Am I unlovable? Am I not worthy of a compliment? Someone sees us as not put together. And all of a sudden we think, well, maybe I'm a less valuable person. We start to fear like, maybe I am actually this thing that I'm afraid of. Maybe God doesn't see me as valuable. We fear, we, if we fail at something, we fear that God will value us less. On the flip side of that, we're successful at something, and so we think God values us higher. Do you see this? Are we getting close here? Someone else has beliefs that are contrary to ours, and we start going, well, if they're allowed to have those beliefs, it must say something about mine. We fear maybe we're wrong. So we live in this place of fear, and it ultimately boils down to the fact that we believe somehow we're unlovable, that God doesn't actually love us. That's the fear. And so what we do in the face of this is we posture ourselves. Pride shows up in this space where we feel like I need to be somebody that I'm not. Ultimately, pride is being someone who's not truthful. It's not being honest about who we are. And out of our fears, we react, don't we? We cut people off because they hurt us. We just say, well, I'm not going gonna to cut that person out of my life. I mean, the, the word is toxic, right? I'm going to cut that toxic person out of my life. Or, or, or we fight against people because we think they threaten our value. Or we take responsibility for things that are other people's responsibility because we're afraid of how it might look on us. Right? We don't take responsibility for things that are ours to be responsible for because we're afraid of the potential conflict. And what would it mean if I had conflict? Does that change my value? Am I unlovable? We engage in all of these self-protective measures to soothe our fear. And let me just say, the one thing we can't do when we live in this fearful spot is love. And ultimately, we who follow Jesus end up being unable to love other people. Do you recognize this? Am I sailing over everybody's head? Do you see that? And so we find it impossible to love people who are different than us. We find it impossible to love people who have different opinions than us because we're afraid of what it would say about us if we actually loved them. And yet Jesus showed us how to love people who killed him. Don't we want to be that kind of people? I mean, maybe you don't want to be. 
But I think that's the invitation, right? Is that we would be people who could actually love other people even when they're different and have different thoughts and have different opinions of us. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite Christian authors. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. All of this stuff that we're talking about, all of these fears revolve around thinking about me. It's all self-protective. It's all thinking about what will this mean for me? That's not humility. Humility is thinking of yourself less. You see, everyone has this deep-seated need to be fully known and fully loved. And to the degree that either of those are uncertain, we feel a need to self-protect, don't we? You're like, if they just knew who I really was, they wouldn't love me. They love me because they don't know me. Have you ever had that? Or maybe they really know me and that means that's why they don't love me, right? If any of those, if either of those things are out of sorts, we feel a need to self-protect. We isolate ourselves. We cut ourselves off from other people. The only way that you can live the kingdom life of humility is to know at the depth of your core that you are fully known and fully loved. We want to live this life that Jesus invites us into, a humble life that feels no need to self-protect. It has to start from a place where we're fully known and fully loved. How do we do that? I'll finish with this thought. Mark 1.11. You guys know this passage. Before Jesus does anything... Jesus gets baptized, and here's what, here's what it says. It says, a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. For some of us, we need to start every day this way. Actually, for most of us. We start every day in a space where we hear God say to us, you are my son, you are my daughter. I know you haven't done anything yet today, but I'm well pleased with you. Because if we don't have this, do you know what we end up doing? We spend the rest of our lives trying to fix our value based on other people. The only way we live humble lives is we start from this place of you are my son, you are my daughter. With you, I'm well pleased. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.